morning, gents. Psalmist writes chapter 90, verse 12, So teach us to number our days, that we may present to thee a heart of wisdom. Repeat that. Teach us to number our days, that we may present to thee a heart of wisdom. Well, that's why you're here. That's why you have this sojourn on earth. One of the poets has said that life is a veil of soul making. That's a true statement. Your soul is being formed for good or for ill while you're on earth. Now, men, a heart of wisdom is really not connected with IQ. It has everything to do with what some of the guys have talked about this weekend, and that is running the race of life. Before you were born, God traced out a path for each guy. And your only mission is to finish that race. You're not competing with anybody else. You've got a race to run, and it's deadly serious. And if you finish that race, you present to God a heart of wisdom. Because telling God, God is a card dealer. He deals out to some guys aces and kings, to some guys deuces and trays. That's not our call. You play the hand that's dealt you. But God judges on a handicap system. So the guy with the aces and kings better knock it out of the park. Whereas the guy with the deuces and trays, sort of like Rahab the harlot. She gets one card to play. The spies are coming in. She says, that's the people of God. Yeah, I want to be with them. And she's in the Hebrews Hall of Fame. Your hand is not the issue. How you play it is the issue. Now, gentlemen, this acquisition of a heart of wisdom has always been undertaken in a hostile environment. Consider 1 John 5.19. We know that we are of God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. It's done in a hostile environment. The men, what is happening to us here in the West is the hostility of that environment is becoming increasingly apparent to us. We've lived coddled lives. And the hostility has been inapparent at best. And that's because, men, we have lived in a culture that has the fingerprints of Jesus Christ all over it. We've lived in a culture that in, though not Christian in the true sense of the word, might be labeled Christendom. That is, it is a marriage of state interests with church interests. 
And so there is, has been a more or less understanding about Christian morality and a Christian worldview. That has been destroyed. That just doesn't exist anymore. Christian morality, Christian worldview, in the public arena, is irrelevant. You understand? Now, what is happening currently is something I'm not sure anyone dreamed possible. See, when you push back against the morality of God and the worldview, that is, the knowledge of God, how God sees things, when you push back against that, you are in fact pushing back pushing back against spiritual reality. Spiritual reality that none of us can see. Can see. Remember Paul, what Paul says to the Ephesians, chapter 6, verse 12. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, etc. We've been pushing back against that now for a long time. And what we are currently pushing back against as a people, as a culture, is physical reality. We are trying to do a couple of things. We are trying to erase the image of God from ourselves. And we are trying to replace physical reality with new realities of our own creation. And we are seeking to remake people in our image, not the image of God. That's sort of big picture what's what's going on. So that's what I want to talk with you about. Um, let me pray and then I'll ask for questions. Lord Jesus, thank you for the privilege of bearing your name. Thank you for the privilege of being here and having the freedom to speak of you with these men. I pray, Lord, your Holy Spirit would superintend our time. I plead with you, O God, that you and only you would speak and that we would have ears to hear. For Christ's sake, amen. So that little preamble, any questions about that? Okay. Could you give an uh, illustration of us desiring to make people in our own image? I'll give you I'll give you some more as we go, Jim. But the most obvious one is, do you know what what Genesis one twenty seven says? Just just build it out for us. Anybody that's got Genesis one twenty seven. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. What was that last clause? Male and female. Who'd have thunk it? Gentlemen, that belief that there are only two sexes has been the foundation of every civilization that's ever existed. It's a command of the obvious. But you are now part of a culture that no longer believes that idea. That is a pushback against physical reality. Women look one way. 
Men look another way. And we are saying that is irrelevant. If you want to look differently, we'll fix that for you. Physical reality is under assault. Gentlemen, let me suggest to you that this is a religious war that we are in. And these guys are deadly, deadly serious about their religion. And I would suggest to you that they take their religion more seriously than we do. We have been poor stewards of what we've been given. And it's time to get our game faces on. Any other questions? Gentlemen, wisdom, if you're going to present to God a heart of wisdom, it cannot be divorced from three things. It cannot be divorced from biblical morality. It cannot be divorced from a biblical worldview. And it cannot be divorced from reality as God defines reality. Again, those first two are gone. They've been destroyed. And we let it happen. It happened on my watch. And the third thing is happening before our eyes. All the most important truths are eternal and spiritual rather than temporal and natural. And men, the Bible is the only source of undiluted spiritual and eternal truth. And what we've done is we have allowed things that are temporal and natural to inform our understanding of the Bible. Which is to say we have allowed the unbelievers to interpret the Bible for us. We stood by. We let them do it. And not a whisper was made. God help us. So I ask myself the question, how much of my worldview really is informed by the Bible? Jim, let me direct you to Matthew chapter 6. And I'm going to read verses 22 to 23. This is Jesus speaking from the Sermon on the Mount. Listen to what he says. The eye is the lamp of the body. So then, if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Let me suggest what Jesus is talking about is not your physical eyes, not these two things in the front of your head. It's true, you see with these, but you understand with this. You understand with your brain. You see lots of things, but that doesn't mean you understand what you see. I'll give you an example. 9-11. These jet airliners fly into all these buildings and kill all these people. Everybody saw the same thing, right? There's no doubt about what happened. We saw it with these eyes. But how did you interpret that? Well, if you're in one part of the world with one framework, you interpreted that as a heroic act by martyrs. 
If you're in another part of the world, you see it as an evil act by cowards. So we see things, but our mind has to understand and interpret what you see. That's what Jesus is talking about. If you're not seen with the right interpretive lenses, you will not understand what you see. Discussion? Questions about that? John? Yeah, Jerry. Um, You said uh, we let the unbelievers interpret the Bible um, and we've let them do it. And my question is, how should it have gone or what's the alternative or what, you know, moving forward uh, are the things that you would hope the body of believers would do in order to protect the integrity of the faith? John, there was a cultural revolution that took place in this country and in much of, the, of, of Western Europe in the late 60s and early 70s. It was, it was anti-authoritarian in nature. And it added a carrot to the anti-authoritarianism, and that carrot was free sex. And so, I'm in high school, and the sexual mores are more or less Christian in, like, say, my freshman, sophomore year of high school. So that would have been like 64, 65. By the time I hit the college campus, There were willing women everywhere. That was a new phenomenon. And men, I mean, here here was the deal that was being offered. We women want what you men have. We want access to all the best jobs, blah, 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 et cetera, et cetera. We also want to have sex without commitment. And guys go, you said what? You want sex without commitment? That's a bingo. That's that's the holy grail of horny guys, right? (laughs) So we did it. And as guys were doing this, as Christian guys were shacking up with women, I can't remember one instance of the church ever pulling those guys aside and saying, my brother, you cannot do this. It is sin. And if you refuse, we'll have to break fellowship with you. I can't think of one instance where that happened. So then, so this is my generation now. So we grow up, and actually we didn't. We really didn't grow up. And we got married. And we decided that the first wife wasn't good enough. And so we wanted to divorce her and get a new one. And again, the church didn't say, you can't do that. You do, and we're going to have to discipline you. They didn't do it. And so there was a real revival that took place in the early 70s. In fact, I think there's a movie about it now, The Jesus People. It was a real thing. The hippies came to Christ. And unfortunately, they brought their worldview with them. And part of that worldview said, look, we just raised Cain on the college campuses and got away with it. We now come into the church and we discover the doctrine of grace 
and said, said, we said to ourselves, see, we were right all along. There are no consequences for what you do here. And that became part of the fabric of the church. And now, my brother, we are in a position where we, we don't like it. We, we loved it when we heteros were getting ours, right? We don't like it now that the gays want theirs and the LGBTQers want theirs. But the problem is we have forfeited moral standing. We're a bunch of hypocrites. So where do we go from here? I want to talk about that at the end, but make sure I do. If I, if I, if I start pulling away and look like I'm going to leave, make sure I talk about that. Hey, and don't, don't leave without me, man. We okay? Any other questions? All right. Gentlemen, this business, what I want to talk about now is, is, is forming worldview. How, how, you, how it is you come to understand what you understand. And let me suggest to you that none of us are wholly original thinkers. We all gain what we know from other people. That might be your parents, might be your peers, might be pastors, teachers, etc. Now, all of that, there's a, there, there's a compressed way to say that. And that compressed way to say that is that knowledge is socially constructed. And that means that the society of which you are part is going to determine to a very large extent what you believe. Now, Here's the caveat. If the only culture you know is your own, you do not understand your culture. And that is because you need objectivity, you need distance to see it clearly. Now, you can travel to other countries and that, and that certainly helps. But let me suggest there's a better way, a more important way. The Bible creates a culture. When you read that book and you believe it, it begins to create a culture in here. It begins to create a culture in your soul. And that's, on, that's intentional on the part of God. Because it allows you to view your culture more objectively. Not with rose-colored glasses, but to see it as God sees it. That's why getting yourself into the Word is so important with respect to this thing that Jesus is talking about, about how you see things. Because that changes your understanding. And I'm going to use understanding and wisdom, there may be nuances of difference, but in this talk, I'm using them interchangeably. Any questions about that? Gentlemen, let me suggest that our natural inclination is to read the Bible through the grid of our culture. That's just how it works. 
That has to be resisted and overcome. You have to reverse the process and read your culture through the Bible. Together? And it's it's really easy to do. All you have to do is read it straight up. That's all you have to do. And, gentlemen, when you come to things in that book that you disagree with, or maybe it even angers you, something important has just happened. Because you have come to a place where you are wrong. And being wrong is a holy moment. What are you going to do? Are you going to say, God, I really don't like it. But I am wrong. Because you're right. You're always right. And so I bend my knee and I accept what you say. My culture doesn't, but I do. Those are the really precious things that when you come upon those, don't let the moment pass you by. Questions or discussion? Ryan? Um, Jerry, can you talk a little bit about how you balance... Um, reading the Bible straight up versus understanding the context of what you're reading? Well, my brother, context is is certainly important. But if I use context to say, well, that commandment is cultural, the chances that I'm wrong approach 100 now, let me give you a, <clears throat> a counter to that. Jesus says to Peter, you know, the, the, the question has been asked about paying the poll tax to Caesar. And Jesus says, well, render under Caesar what is Caesar's. And so he says, Peter, go, go to the lake, get a fish, open his mouth, there'll be a coin there, and that's our, you, know, you pay the tax with that. Was that a cultural commandment? Well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, that's not the word I would have used. I would have said that was a commandment to Peter. But it's not a, it's not a universalized commandment because you'd never come to that conclusion, right? Everything else that is diff- that is not like that is immutable. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, yes and forever. So, Ryan, here's the challenge. Jesus never, ever changes. But people change. Time changes. History changes. Culture change. The issue is, how do you keep in focus the timeless Christ with all this change? And the answer is, you have to read it straight up. He doesn't change. And so when he says something silly like, men, when you're praying, take your hats off. You take your dumb hat off. And you, you might think to yourself, well, God, why in the world do you care? What difference does it make? He didn't ask you to cut your arm off. 
Just take your dumb hat off. It's not that hard. My brother, one of the things we do, we've got to be very careful about, is, is something that comes very close to mocking God. And you do not want to appear in the presence of Jesus Christ and say to him, Lord, you were really serious about that? That's a, that's a bad start. So I guess follow up with that. Um, should we take Jesus literally when he says to gouge out our own eyes or cut off our hands? or you know? So I, wa- I walk myself through that and I say to myself, if I did that, if I gouged out both my eyes, if I cut off both of my hands, would it solve my lust problem? No. Not even close. So, that can't be the interpretation. He's conveying the importance and the horror of the sin that I'm committing. And giving me a take-no-prisoners attitude toward it. Or trying to give me a take-no-prisoners attitude with it. My brother... Christianity is theological in a, in a way that Judaism is not. There is... There is if, if you want to use the word... It's a philosophical, many of the epistles, and particularly Paul's epistles, are philosophical. The sayings of Jesus make the philosophers look like dum-dums. I mean, they're, I, don't, I don't understand half of what he says. Just, just, if you just make me try to figure out who Jesus is based on his parables, my goose is cooked. I don't know, I don't understand the parables even after he explains it to me, I don't understand. So, there is an element of mystery in your relationship with God that is absolutely necessary. And part of that mystery includes the fear of God and the idea that jacking with Him in any way is a good idea. So, how do you know when Jesus is talking to Peter specifically by saying, hey, go get a coin out of the fish versus put your sword down um, and knowing whether or not that is specific to Peter, put your sword down, or Christian, put your sword down. Yeah. As you read that passage, how do you read it? They're heading to to Gethsemane. How do you read it? I would say it is specific to Peter. I would too. Again, if you're reading it like you're reading any other book, that's the most most natural interpretation. So, um, can you speak to the earnestness of the heart versus correctness and interpretation as it pertains to God's grace towards us. John, faith slash belief 
is a virtue in Christianity, but in no other religion or philosophy that I'm aware of. I ask myself, why is faith a virtue in Christianity? My sense is, believing the truth in the, in the hostile environment and with the evil heart that resides in all of us makes believing the truth impossible. And so, Paul writes in Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. So that first bolus of faith has to be given to us. And so now you're in touch with the truth. But you're not just in touch with the truth. You have the Holy Spirit of God himself residing within you. And I would suggest to you, my brother, that the Holy Spirit wrote the Bible. And he is in you as the interpreter of that Bible. And so when we go to the Word, we fall on our knees and say, Lord, if you do not reveal, I will not see. I want to see it as you mean it. I don't want to bring my biases and prejudices into this. I want to know the truth with all my being. I want to know you. I'll pay any price. Hello? There we go. This is a simple question, so we can keep going. Um, as a new reader of the Bible, someone who struggles to read, are there any translations that you don't care for that you think, like, for example, um, the NASB versus the Message or the NLT or anything like that? Because I, I, I don't know any different, and sometimes it's easier for me to understand. And What, what do you like to read right now? The NLT, and then I will use the message to try to understand it on a dumb, dumb level for me. Let me suggest an option. Go, that's fine with the NLT, but check it then against the NASB because the NLT is not a true translation. They're doing some thinking for you. They're doing some application for you. They're doing some interpreting for you. The NASB is a true translation. Not, not as good as NASB. Does that help? I've kind of got more of an observation <clears throat> than a question. Something I do, like if I'm asked to pray for, like, or at the beginning of church service or when I'm sitting down to read scripture, something I made a practice of doing is in that prayer time, Asking for the Lord to guide me through it and to help me understand it as He would have me understand it and not how I think I should understand it. Amen. Well said. Somebody else? Um... Let me reference a Barna study that was recently done. He, um, he queried exclusively self-proclaimed evangelicals. 
And the question that he was putting to them that he was trying to get at is, do these self-professed evangelicals have a biblical worldview, a Christian worldview? And his criteria for that are as follows. Absolute moral truth exists. God is the all-knowing and all-powerful creator and sustainer. The Bible is his accurate and reliable message to us that we should rely on Christ and cannot earn our way into heaven and that Satan exists. Because those are the criteria. By my standards, that's a pretty low bar, but okay. 81% of self-proclaimed evangelicals disagree with one or more of the things that I just read to you. Evangelicals. Now, this didn't include things like obedience, judgment, existence of hell, participation in ministry, fear of God. None of those things are on there. You put those things on there, and it gets to be a pretty big number. So again, Christian morality, Christian worldview is all but extinct even in the church. Okay. Jim, you asked me for some examples about pushback against physical reality. Here's a couple more. The right to kill one's unborn baby for any or no reason is a foundational right. Some men can have babies. There are a multitude of sex, sexes, genders, and even children can choose to be whatever they wish without their parents' consent. We don't know what a woman is. Your race defines who you are. Parents have no business in their children's education. The police should be defunded and criminal behavior decriminalized. Climate change is a moral issue. Just a sampling of the pushback against physical reality. And gentlemen, the, the metaverse and all of these endeavors that are pushing us, in my opinion, towards emerging with machines are part of our pushback against physical reality as it currently exists. And men, if, if God forbid he allows us to perfect virtual sex, we are done. And I don't know how close they are to that, but I am pretty sure guys are working feverishly for that gold mine. Okay, let me see. There's a lot of fluff in here. I'm sorry, guys. All right. So this this is where I'm this is where I'm going. There's a ancient parable called the Fox and the Hedgehog, and it goes like this. It says the fox knows many small things, but the hedgehog knows one big thing. Now, there are various interpretations of what the author Archilochus meant by that. It's a parable about people. And hedgehogs see life 
through one grid. And the foxes see life through multiple grids, multiple different ways of looking at things. They're kind of go with the flow, free spirits, unfocused. Now, the hedgehogs of our day view things through gender, view things through race, view things through environmentalism, and so on. Everything is about that. Now, I suggest they are not wrong to have an organizing principle, a hedgehog. But they've chosen the wrong hedgehog. Jesus Christ in the Bible is the hedgehog through which life has to be viewed. And everything else are foxes. So you got the concept? Simple, simple idea? Everybody good? Okay. And again, men, my argument is that the church has got the wrong hedgehog. Now, life is a unifying whole. Everything fits together. Now, none of us is smart enough to put all the pieces together. I suggest to you that when God created, He created with His Son Jesus Christ in mind. And everything, everything is about Him. That includes the Bible, obviously. It also includes man. It also includes nature. And it also includes history. And that there is a biblical way to look at those things. And there is an unbiblical way to look at those things. And our culture and much of the church has chosen to look at these things in an unbiblical fashion. So, questions or comments about that? And we'll keep going and go. Yeah, Tom. So, when I used to read um, Jeremiah 6.15, which is the one that says, Are they ashamed of their loathsome conduct? No, they have no shame at all. They do not even know how to blush. So they will fall among the fallen. They will be brought down when I punish them, says the Lord. I used to think of that as the them. Now, getting back to the church context with the fox and the hedgehog, if if the people that I go to church with, including me sometimes, are becoming more foxes than hedgehogs, so to speak, what's your take of that relative to Matthew 7? I, I don't personally believe that you can lose your salvation. I think when you're elect, you're the elect. How do you reconcile all these dear friends you've walked with for X many years if you've stayed with a church when they are not blushing anymore? And sometimes I'm not blushing. So how do we reconcile that? You, re- you just read uh, Jeremiah 6.15? Read 16. Verse 16. 
This is the what? Oh, the crossroads. Uh, this is what the Lord says: Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask for the good way is, and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. And they said, "We will not walk in." So, here's what he's saying: Stand by the ways, see and ask for the good path, for the ancient paths where the good way is, for the ancient paths. Now go to Isaiah chapter 51. So. He's, he's directing them after talking to a stubborn people. He says, look to the ancient paths. Isaiah 51, first two verses. Maybe it's three, I can't remember. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness and who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were cut and to the quarry from which you were hewn. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah who gave you birth. When I called him, he was but one, and I blessed him and made him many. So it's the same idea. Look backwards. Now, gentlemen, this is precisely what we refuse to do. Think about the question this way. With respect to a walk with God, who stood closer to him? Abraham? Or the Pharisees of Jesus' day? No-brainer. Who stands closer to Jesus Christ? His apostles or us today? The apostles, probably. It's a no-brainer. It's obvious. See, men, we are looking back at the cross. We're looking back at Christ. We're looking back at the Bible through a 2,000-year-old cataract that has been distorted by the thought of man. That's what's happened to us. And so, not only that, we are in the grip of what I would call the myth of progress, which says the past is by definition dire. And the future is where the action is. Forget the past. Look to the future because it is bright. And the Bible says the opposite. Stand by the ways and see and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is. And walk in it. And like Israel, we say, we will not walk in it. Read that book the way a fisherman would read that book. A first century fisherman. So I still didn't hear how you would respond to the saved, not saved, so tell me, <clears throat> Hebrews, the assurance of salvation, Hebrews 11, 6. And without faith, it is impossible to believe him. For he who comes to God must believe, not be certain, must believe that he is and that he is the rewarder of those who seek him. If I have to believe, not be certain, not know that God exists, then how can I know for certain that I'll go to heaven if I have to believe that he exists? I don't know that he exists. Nobody in this room does. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. So the question then is this. Are there people who have all the trappings and appearances of being followers of Christ who go to hell? Well, 
Matthew 7, 21 to 23, is, that's exactly what it says. Gentlemen, we don't know who the elect are. That's why we need assurance. And that's why we need something objective like obedience. It's not that our obedience saves us. It does not. But you can't be saved without it. Or to say that a different way, obedience is necessary, but it is not sufficient. May I suggest to you that every generation before us understood this. It's us. We're the guys who are dislocated. We've cut ourselves off systematically from the past. And men, that was intentional. Marxism, which is the ideology of our age, which is the worldview that has infected the West and has infected the church, says, by definition, the past is dire. Therefore, we relentlessly criticize and repudiate the past. So, what was in our past? Men. We repudiate men. Whiteness. We repudiate whiteness. Reason. We repudiate reason in favor of desire. And on and on and on. Heterosexuality is part of the past. We repudiate it. Don't you understand what they're doing? What is happening? We're being cut off from our past. We think that the guys who preceded us were idiots. And gentlemen, when you say, when you, when you embrace the idea that the past is dire, what you are saying is this. Remember Hebrews 4.3. Speaking of God, His works were finished from the foundation of the world. Gentlemen, history is nothing but the playing out of the plan of God in time. He, not men, he is the author of the past. And when you say the past is dire, you're saying God screwed up. You understand? Gentlemen, someone mentioned that we all have a desire for justice. Let me suggest to you that as a follower of Jesus Christ, you have to do a couple of things. Number one, you must act justly. But number two, you, may not, you cannot expect reciprocity. And number three, you must put on the shelf your concept of justice. Because your concept of justice in mind is not the concept of God on justice. Remember, God put his son on the cross and called that just. But he died in your place and mine. That's what God calls justice. And men, if, you, if, it, if it is justice you want from God, you can spend eternity in hell. Because that's what we justly have earned. Don't bring up the subject of justice with God. He is infinitely good. And this is all going to get sorted out. Remember the cards. The aces and the kings versus the deuces and the trays. God's going to sort it all out. Questions?
All right. Oh, yes. Can you, uh, can you address Matthew 11, where Jesus, um, since we're talking about culture, Jesus kind of does that. Um, he goes to each city, he says, Woe to you, Chorzan, and woe to you, or woe to you, Bethsaida. <coughs> and he makes a statement at the end, um, maybe you could speak to, but he says, But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. Do you think he's talking about culturally or just unrepentant? Or? Yeah, my brother, I think what he, what he is saying is you Israelites, my, my contemporaries, you guys who are living here in my time, spiritually speaking, you've been dealt aces and kings. Spiritually speaking, those guys back in Sodom got deuces and trades. And therefore, I'm going to judge you more harshly than them. See, men, we as Christians tell one another a terrible lie. God's going to go easier on me than he will the unbeliever. Not so. Read, read Romans 2. And in a sense, in, in, in broad terms, what Romans 2 says, Romans 2 establishes the principles of justice. If you want to know what's going to be on the test when you face Jesus... Read Romans 2. And essentially what he says is, each of us, as we go through life, is building his own personal yardstick. And you're going to be measured by the yardstick that you built. Yes, sir. Isaiah 60 talks about great darkness covering all the nations. And also talks about us being light and, and God shining on us. Don't you think that, that some of this is his doing and maybe all of it, probably all of it, <laughs> truthfully, if you want to go Calvinistic on it. Everything is under his control and all that darkness is his doing. And there's an element of us that we should be looking forward to the great light, the revival, the bride of Christ becoming spotless and, 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 and just the separation between the two. God is absolutely sovereign. But having said that, my brother's passage back there in Mark 11, he nonetheless holds us accountable for our stewardship. So, in, in everything, you have to distinguish between two things. One is stewardship, and the other is results. God charges me with the stewardship, say, for example, of being a good husband and being a good father. I will be judged on both of those things. But the results, what kind of wife she turns out to be, what kind of kids I turn out to have, those are his. He does not, he just simply doesn't entrust the results to any of us. But the stuff that is happening in the future, he's the, he's the author of that too. In Lamentations 3, 37 and 38, who is there who speaks and it comes to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill go forth? He doesn't flinch. But we're accountable. Anything else? All right, so I'm not going to belabor the point that you have to look at everything through the grid of the Bible. So let's talk about the worldview that we've taken from the, wor from, the, from the world about man. Let's talk about man for a second. 
We have told one another the lie that we are masters of our own destiny. We have told one another the lie that man, as Scott pointed out yesterday, is the measure of all things. Those two things are lies. And, gentlemen, because we believe we are masters of our own destinies and the technology that we've accumulated is, is growing at a frightening rate, I think we are pushing increasingly towards a transhumanist posture, that is, wedding machines to human bodies and using AI to assist us in some of these things and to create alternative universes. Where that goes, I don't know, but I don't think it's a good place. But gentlemen, lost in that equation, let's say we get the Holy Grail. Let's say that we're able to live forever, grant ourselves immortality. That seems like a stretch to me, but what if you do? Who's going to save your soul? And gentlemen, we speak far too little about our souls. The soul is the thing you're going to take off this planet. That's it. That's all that leaves. And you right now, in every moment of your life, are determining the quality of that soul that is going to leave this planet. Our focus has to be on that. Um, I think that's all I'm going to say about, about man. Questions about that? Yeah, yes, sir. <clears throat> Can I get some water? Um, Thank you. You know, you said, uh, just make more of a comment. Um, you said man is the center of all things, and I think uh, Christ comes into the world at the, the outbreak of Hellenism, or it was referred to as the fullness of time, or um, a time when man made himself the center of the world, came as a man, showed us how to walk out in service to God. Um, and you're talking about the merging of you know, uh, the human body with machines and I think it goes to the very reality, the fabric of reality of the soul and the flesh. <clears throat> and um, I don't know my own personal belief, and I know we don't know the hour or the time, but I don't think Christ is going to allow that because it allows man to set the definition of the soul. And uh, <clears throat> uh, if God's true to his word, I don't think that's going to be the case. And I, I don't want to speculate on things, but... To me, that uh, makes a lot of sense. I just like your thoughts on that. I'm voting with you, man. I hope that's right. But I, have, I don't have any idea. But I would suggest to you, my brother, that we are treading in waters where the human race has never been. We, we have embraced a morality that nobody has ever, ever, ever embraced. And remember the words... That God speaks when he confuses the language at the Tower of Babel. If I don't do this, 
nothing will be impossible to them. Now, I don't know how big that a statement that is, but I think it's a pretty big statement. It's interesting, men, that Book of Daniel, chapter 12, verse 4, says, he's, he's talking about what things are going to look like as the end approaches. And he says, one of the things is that knowledge will increase. And I suspect Daniel had no idea how that could be possible. Nobody before our time has understood how knowledge can increase. But the scientific method coupled with the fact that the laws of nature are written in differential equations and all the technology that's spun off of that produced a knowledge building producing philosophy, if you will. It made all that possible. And it became possible because God wrote the laws of nature in differential equations. Einstein discovers calculus and says, oh, how'd that happen? He knew, because he knew God wrote it. We've forgotten that. Yes, sir. So can you speak to where the line between that you're talking about with the concern of man morphing with machine and how that may play with other ways that we artificially keep ourselves alive, whether that's pacemakers, insulin pumps, or anything else like that. And is there a switch that's different at some point that you think? Yeah, my brother, again, it's one of those things that I think is, is going to be an individual decision uh, on our part. I think I don't see anything that is happening right now where I would say, no, 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 I, I, I wouldn't do that. I think when they begin to try to do something with cognition, something with the thing in our head, that's the time to get nervous. Let's see if we can figure out how to download everything that's in here onto silicon and keep it alive. Those kinds of things. Anybody else? Okay. Do you want to mention, make one more comment about man before we move on? We've become a proud and haughty people. And it seems to me in our pursuit of happiness, our pursuit of pleasure, that we've forgotten something very important about ourselves. God goes looking for Adam after he sinned. Where are you, Adam? Adam says, I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. I can't speak for any of you, but let me tell you what that verse means to me. Adam described me to a T. 
when he said that. I am naked. You know what my nakedness is? My nakedness is that I am pretty darn sure I do not have what it takes to be a real man. You know what my fear is? You'll find out. And when you do, you'll reject me. And so I hide. Lots of ways to hide. You can hide behind wealth. You can hide behind degrees. You can hide behind athletic prowess. You can hide by bluster and bravado. There's a thousand ways to hide. And Scott talked about this yesterday, about power perfected in weakness. Owning up to that is where Jesus is. Owning up to what you really are, the worm you really are, is where you find Christ. And then, men, every morning he invites you to enter the yoke with him. And when you do, you are with the only real man the world's ever produced. And that may not make me a man, but I can act like one. Masculinity is being expunged from our culture. Act like a man. Be yoked with the real man. And you can act like one. Gentlemen, when you slake, that, I, I don't know how you, if you guys relate to what I'm talking about or not, but in me, it produces an emptiness, a hole that I can't fill. And so I like to fill it, try to fill it with lots of illicit ways. You can fill that with drugs. You can fill it with alcohol. You can fill it with illicit sex. You can fill it with achievement. There's lots of ways to try to fill it. My admonition to you is, Fill it with Jesus Christ. Power is perfected in weakness. Questions about that? Mark? So I had a coach once tell me, fake it till you make it. Is that kind of, the, is that kind of what you're saying, sort of? No. I'm saying you're not faking it. You're with Jesus Christ. He's a man. Act like one when you're with him. Another question. So, scattered through the Bible, this remnant issue, like the remnant of Christ, the remnant of Christians, is that what you're speaking of now? Is we're a remnant, you think? There's always a remnant, my brother. Always a remnant. But, just consider what Jesus says about the time of his return. Luke 18.8, however, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on earth? That's not, that's not a statement of the church triumphant. And then again, in Mark 24.12, because of the increase of lawlessness, the love of most will grow cold. Gentlemen, I can feel both of those impulses on me. It's like it makes me sick. And we have to we have to resist that with the Holy Spirit. 
Okay, let's talk about nature. And when I say nature, I'm talking about <clears throat> all of the physical and material created universe. We suggest our view of nature brings two dangers with it. The first is to view nature as permanent and man as transient. The opposite is true. People live forever. The sun, the moon, and the stars will go out and you'll be alive. And so the thesis of the scripture, that being the case, is plan and live accordingly. People are forever. The word of God is forever. The object of the game, getting them together. Let me make one comment about climate change, which I think is a manifestation of this obsession with nature. God's got the planet. You don't have to worry about the planet. Listen to what he says in Genesis 8, 21 to 22. The Lord smelled the soothing aroma. and The Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man. For the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth, and I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. Now catch this. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, and cold and heat, and summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. He's got the planet. Worry about something else. Now this obsession with nature and saving the planet is closely related to a second problem that nature presents, and that is the worship of nature. I'm not going to take time to develop this, but if you read Deuteronomy 4, then verse 6, and then verse 19, you see a connection between morality and the, the fact that morality precedes knowledge. You see a connection between morality and knowledge. And then verse 19 is what happens if you don't put morality and knowledge together. And that is that you end up worshiping the sun, the moon, and the stars. In other words, you become a pagan. And paganism is in our future. Book of Revelation is replete with worship of other than God. It is not replete with the worship of God. It is replete with the worship of someone other than God. Satan is worshipped. The Antichrist is worshipped. Demons are worshipped in the book of Revelation. And I would argue that as a culture, we are very, very close to embracing outright demonism. And I think parts of our culture already have. Any questions about that? Yes, sir. Right here. The, the status of culture today. Um, I keep coming to 
Our current culture is the action or the reaction. I'm not sure I understand what you mean. So every every action has an equal and or opposite reaction. So are we in the action currently? Because it's jumped so, culture has been jumped so much. Are we in the action or are we in the reaction? Well, let me suggest that the... The realm of causes is spiritual. And that we live in the world of effects. So that, to say that another way, the spiritual superintends the natural. So God set the thing in motion when he created the universe. huh? And everything has been running exactly according to the way he designed it. So in that sense, we're all reactors. Make sense? So, what role when when we're called to be stewards of the earth? Who called who called you to be a steward of the earth? Hmm? I'm sorry. Who called you to do yeah. that? Like in uh, was it uh, Deuteronomy? Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, we're called to be stewards of the earth. What okay. role does that mean? Like, what, how, what's the practical applications for that? What, and what are we responsible for? Are you called to be a steward of your car? Yeah, you're supposed to maintain it. Your house? Yeah. Who tells you what that looks like? I do. Same with the earth. And all I'm suggesting to you is don't waste ammo on secondary targets. Your car isn't going to heaven. Your house isn't. The earth as currently composed isn't. God's got it. Relax. Yes. You said morality precedes knowledge. Yes. Yeah, go to Deuteronomy chapter 4. Read verse 2. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Couldn't be simpler, right? That's a slam dunk. Even I can understand that passage. I'd argue that neither Israel nor the... Stay there, Tom. Neither Israel nor the church has ever done that. We are always adding and subtracting. So then read verse 6. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. Okay, now one more. Verse 7? No, no, I'm sorry. Oh. No, no, one more verse. It's in uh, Matthew. I'm sorry. John seventeen John seven seventeen. That is where if you want to do my will, then you'll understand. Yes. If you if you, if you do what I tell you, then you'll know if it's the truth. And my brother, that is why we have been we are cut off from the truth, because we have not been moral. Okay, who's first? Ben. Uh, 
Jerry, when you said we're on the verge of outright worship of demonism, uh, what, do you see any examples of that today? And then potentially, what do you think that looks like? Well, I, the, some guys have, have young kids who listen to stuff that would probably not edify me. And um, there are artists... Like, for example, I'm thinking of one who performs a lap dance for Satan in his video. And I am told that there are many such artists uh, that are doing similar things. And, you know, I don't know what to believe on the Internet. There's all sorts of stuff on the Internet about child sacrifice, et cetera, et cetera. I don't know if it's true or not. What I, what I, the reason I, I, I think we're close to it, Ben, is because... I think secularism has accomplished what it was meant to accomplish, which is the destruction of Christianity. But secularism is a stale idea. That does, it doesn't resonate with most people. It might resonate with some intellectual sitting there somewhere, but for guys like us, it just doesn't resonate. We're religious. And since we've rejected Christianity, I would suggest that that, that spiritual north for the human race is paganism, and that involves demons. Thank you. Jerry, um, if I understood you correctly, you said that the unseen is the realm of cause, and we live in a land of effect. Is that correct? Yes. But it works the other way, too, right? In some way that I don't understand, we cause here an effect in the spiritual. Is that correct? I, th I think so, and I, th I think one um, indication of that is in um, Hebrews chapter 9, where it says that Jesus cleansed the heavenly tabernacle. And you ask yourself, well, how did it get dirty? And the only answer I can think of is because of the sin of man. But uh, Yeah, I agree. But also in the sense that when Jesus tells the story of treasures in heaven, isn't that, isn't that a manifestation of that too? Absolutely. Seven, I'm sorry? 940? 940? All right. Well, then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump on my horse. Um, we've already talked, touched down briefly on history and the myth of progress. The myth of progress is always looking to the future and incorporated into the myth of, the pro myth of progress is the idea that the past is necessarily dire slash evil. Okay? That is a lie. God is the author of all history, whether we like it or not. And God is good. Questions or comments about that? Uh, what did I forget? No, I got them all. All right, I want to talk about thinking for a minute. Winston referred to T.S. Eliot's poem, Choruses on the Rock. And I want to read, it's a very long poem, Can't, I'm not going to read all of it. But he asks three questions. He says, where is the life we've lost in living? Where is the wisdom we've lost in knowledge? Where is the knowledge we've lost in information?
And then he finishes this part of it by saying the cycles of heaven in 20 centuries bring us farther from God and nearer to the dust. Dust. Nearer to the dust. Farther from God and nearer to the dust. He's saying something that we need to hear. There's two, there's two warnings that I glean from this. The first is that our inability or unwillingness to be still, to be alone with God, is soul-destroying. Gentlemen, this is part of what is, is so difficult about living in, in the culture of which we're a part. The velocity of life is soul-withering. You get tired just sitting in front of a computer screen. We need time to be alone with the Lord. And the second part of that equation is this this distinction that he makes between wisdom, knowledge, and information. I want to talk about that for a minute. They're three, they're three very different things. What we all deal with is information. The internet, a book, the Bible is about information. And I argue, men, that information by itself doesn't get you very far. Because for information to become useful, it has to be put together. You have to take a piece of information here, a piece of information here, and connect them in order for that to become knowledge. Chesterton says thinking is making connections. That's what he's talking about. You need bits of information that you construct into knowledge. That process is the process of thinking. And that takes time. Undistracted time. Now men, the only place that you can go where the information is all true is the Bible. Every other source that you look at has a mixture of true and false. And it's becoming increasingly difficult to tell the difference between the two. But the Bible is all true. Now, so you put the information, you've you've selected only true information, you've put it together correctly, and now you've assembled knowledge. Gentlemen, knowledge is not wisdom. For knowledge to become wisdom, it has to become part of the fabric of you. And it has to be seen in a broader context. There's a big difference between knowledge and wisdom slash understanding. I'll give you a trivial example. I know, I have knowledge that E equals MC squared. But I do not have understanding of why E equals MC squared or how that came to be, how that was derived. And gentlemen, understanding 
involved that second step of the how and the why. That's what the admonition of the scriptures is for us to do, to gain wisdom. It requires information that has to be all true, has to be assembled into knowledge, and then taken into the fabric of your being as God further massages it into you and gives you understanding and wisdom. Any questions about that? And again, men, as I pointed out earlier, some of the most fertile areas when you're in the Bible is when you get angry at a passage or you disagree with it. You're wrong. Get the truth and believe it. John? Jerry, how do you know you've gotten to wisdom then? If you think you have, you haven't. Again, John, I, I, I am moderately confident that in the world of cockroaches, there are smart cockroaches and dumb cockroaches. But who really cares? You know, at the end of the day, you're still a cockroach. Us compared to God, we're, we're children. Just scribbling on walls. But that's, that's, those, those are the only tools we've got are those walls and those crayons. So scribble away. But the point is, he says it's worth it. Again, because it's this. It's, it's the construction of your soul. That wisdom is about. That information, knowledge, and wisdom are about. You are shaping your soul. Or rather, the Holy Spirit is shaping your soul. And it's a deal of the century. Because you get to take it with you. Anything else? Yeah. Doesn't, doesn't wisdom Mark? bring us to like love and, and the fear of God? Doesn't it bring us to some like fruit where we go, wow, I really understand the fear of God. I really understand how I'm to love. Yeah. Paul writes to Timothy, 1 Timothy 1.5, the goal of our instruction is, what's the next word? Is love. The goal of our instruction is everything we apostles are writing to you. Everything that Jesus is talking about. Everything in the Old Testament is to teach you to love. Love from a good conscience and a pure heart and a sincere faith. Those three things speak to morality, a Christian worldview, and a broken will. Those are the three ingredients that are necessary to learn how to love. But everything in there is about love. And you haven't understood it until you see the connection. Yes, sir. Um, you said that information connected together becomes knowledge. And if knowledge internalized in us and worked through us becomes wisdom... Being a good Berean, could you point us to the scripture verses that lead you to that, since that is the source of truth that you were mentioning as well? I think the best place to look, and, and I, I can't give you a chapter and verse, 
is the book of Proverbs. It's interesting that in chapter 8 of Proverbs, wisdom is personified. It's almost as though it's a person. I don't know what that means. Maybe it's Jesus. I don't know. Book of Proverbs is your best bet that I can think of. All right. I want to leave you with a couple admonitions. The first one is we must learn how to fight. Turn with me to Judges chapter 3. I want to read the first two verses. Get a load of what, this, what is being said here. Now these are the nations which the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all who had not experienced any of the wars of Canaan, only in order that the generations of the sons of Israel might be taught war. Those who had not experienced it. Men, we're terrible, weak spiritual warriors. I'm not arguing at all about changing the culture. I'm arguing about personal integrity, personal Christ-likeness. Because men, whatever is in the future, and I do not know the future, your best bet, whether it's good times or bad, is the quality of your relationship with Jesus Christ. That is where the money is. That is your best play in any circumstances. And we have done a poor job of that. So, we must fight. The second admonition is, he will protect you. Hebrews 13, 5 through 6, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you, so that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What shall man do to me? He'll protect us. Second Timothy 1.7 For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. He'll protect us. The last one is that the victory is already secure. Again, there's scattered all over the Bible. The one we've been referencing, and we, we talked about Lamentations 3, 37 and 38, Hebrews 4, 3, His works are finished from the foundation of the world. It's secure. We tell a, a self-serving tale in that regard. <clears throat> In 1997, I'm a U of A basketball fan, and my team won the national championship. It was cool. Got to win six games. Um, I gathered with the same group of fellow superstitious sports fans. We all sat in our same chairs and uh, blah, blah, blah. You know, you know the drill. You know how it works. Um, so we finally we get to the championship game. And um, goes into overtime. Every missed free throw, every missed shot, every turnover, 
We're hosed. It's done. We can't win this thing. I did not enjoy the game even a little bit. I hated it. And then we win. And so I had the genius to record it. And I watched it again. Every missed free throw. Every missed shot. Every missed defensive assignment. Who cares? It just doesn't matter. We win. We win. Gentlemen, we win. You're on the right side. Contend for the faith. Amen? Amen. Thank you, guys.